So tonight we are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and so we will be looking at Genesis 43 and 44, both chapters tonight. Uh, it sounds like a lot of ground to cover, but we will cover it tonight and uh, in our upcoming studies as well. We are going to cover a lot of ground. But it is quite interesting that two Sundays ago, we began the Resolving Everyday Conflict series in Sunday School. And that last week, the last proverb that we studied, Proverbs 16.7, we were exhorted to be peacemakers. And that's within the greater context of our study as a congregation in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is addressing conflict within the church at Corinth. And tonight, as we return to our Genesis study, we will study a narrative that very practically displays heart transformation and preparation for reconciliation. We would certainly agree that conflict is one of the major themes in this last and tenth narrative of Genesis that began in Genesis 37-2, where we read, These are the generations of Jacob. And one could say that conflict has been consistently seen throughout all of the previous nine narratives of Genesis as well, even going back to the very beginning of Genesis. But despite the conflict seen throughout Genesis, we know that God has a good, grand purpose that he will accomplish through not only those that we've previously studied, but that he is accomplishing and will accomplish through Jacob's family as well. And as grand as God's purpose is, we see throughout Genesis his work in individual hearts and lives through those through whom he will work set into motion his plan of redemption, which will impact all mankind. And in tonight's study, we will see God doing the work of reconciling this chosen family by transforming the hearts of individuals in this family. And we will continue to see God use various means to accomplish this purpose. In Genesis 42, we read of Joseph's brother's first visit to Egypt, and this was prompted by Jacob's ordering them to stop looking at each other and to go to Egypt to buy grain. And so they went to Egypt, only ten of them, because at this point in time, Benjamin has now replaced Joseph as the favorite son, and Jacob, favoring Benjamin, decided that it was, it was too, uh, too risky of a journey for him to make, that some harm could come to Benjamin. And so he sends the ten other brothers. Upon their arrival, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. At this point in time, we are in the midst of the seven years of famine after Joseph has implemented his plan of collecting grain during the seven years of plenty. And upon his meeting his brothers, he speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. And when the brothers tell Joseph more about their family, particularly that their father and youngest brother are still in Canaan, he then makes Benjamin's appearance before him, the requirement for their release, and the proof that they are honest men. While at first he said that only one of the brothers would return, he then relents after he takes them out of custody for three days and allows nine brothers to return. And there we saw Joseph's mercy shown to his family because the nine brothers could carry much more grain back to Canaan than just one. And who was chosen but Simeon, 
second-born son of Leah, and he was kept behind so that the second-born son of Rachel might be brought before him. They're allowed to return home, and they believe that they've rightfully purchased this grain. Their belief was proven wrong at a resting point where one of the brothers discovers in his bag of grain that his money sack is in the bag. So their hearts sink, but they continue the journey back to Canaan. Well, their hearts sink further. All of the other brothers discover that their money sacks have been placed in the grain bags that they have. And so as they return home to Jacob without Simeon, and with this grim discovery of money in their sacks, which would make them look like thieves on top of the accusation that they are spies, we last read of Jacob's refusal to send Benjamin back to Egypt, and that's where we left off in 42. You see Reuben stepping forward and saying that he's willing to guarantee guarantee Benjamin's well-being if he were allowed to make the journey to Egypt, and he offers up his two sons. He says, if we don't return safely with Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. And as the chapter closed, we read these words of Jacob which displayed the seemingly insurmountable obstacle of his favoritism when we read in verse 38 of 42, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. While these words display Jacob's heart and what he regards as dearest to him, we know that God is greater than the hardest heart, and that his grace can prevail to accomplish his purpose by transforming hearts to prepare them for reconciliation. And so with that as introduction, let us stand and read the first 14 verses of Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again! Buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brothers, our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in the answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had, if we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, and carry a present down to the man a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. 
Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You may be seated. Tonight's study, we will see heart transformation provoked by desperation. We will see heart transformation tested by confrontation and heart transformation confirmed by demonstration. We will not read every verse in chapters 43 and 44. I will summarize some of the narrative, but we will progress through the study together. So verses 1 and 2 tell us that the severe famine continued in the land, and just as would be expected, the grain that the brothers brought back from Egypt eventually would run out. This caused Jacob to say rather flippantly, go again, buy us a little food. Jacob's command is rather flippant because it's a 200-mile journey to Egypt. It's likely to take 10 days. And if you think about it, it's a 400-mile journey, round trip, likely taking 20 days, not exactly a trip to the corner store. There is seemingly no regard for the fact that Simeon is still in Egypt and has been for approximately 40 days. Because we'll see Judah say in verse 10 that the time between when they first returned from Egypt and Jacob's words in verse 2, they would have been able to make two round trips to Egypt. So imagine your parent, one of your children, is in prison, you don't know their condition, and yet a month and a half pass. Scripture is silent as to whether Jacob asked about Simeon's condition or was concerned, but here in verse 2, he tells his sons that are there to go and buy a little food. And so this brings us to our first question of the evening, or questions. What characteristics are seen in Jacob and Judah in, verses four, in chapter 43, verses 1 through 14? And how do the characteristics displayed here compare to what we know of Jacob and Judah from previous chapters of Genesis? So what characteristics are seen in Jacob and Judah in this part of our passage? And how do these characteristics displayed here compare to what we know of Jacob and Judah from our previous studies of Genesis? Okay, Judah, okay. Okay, very good. Anyone else? Philip? He back on that. Um, we saw before that Judah did not really care for his family at okay. all, but here we see that he's caring for his father and his boy, um, Benjamin. Um, okay, very good. Anyone else? Yes, Philip. The thing of born coming. Okay. Alright. Okay. That's Judah. Anyone want to talk about Jacob? Yes, there we are. Can you say Joseph off to his brothers before 
he even got a complex place where he's sending out his letters, but this time he's camping. Okay. And would you say he's caring about Benjamin, or is there something else at work? He's more protective of Benjamin. So we see Jacob's favoritism continuing. You see that he has no concern for Simeon, as we talked about before. In fact, even in verse 14, he doesn't even name him. He says, perhaps your other brother and Benjamin will return. We see favoritism still at play in Jacob's life, or as a characteristic of Jacob's life. Yes, Terry. Yes. And where, how do you, where do you see that? How about I help you? How about verse 6? Why do you treat me so badly? As to tell the man that you had another brother. See, he still is very much self-focused. His concern is for how he is being treated. And he even insinuates to the brothers that they should have lied about the fact that he, they had another brother. And this caused the brothers to respond in verse 7. How were we to know that he was going to say, bring your brother here? What else about Jacob do we see here? Yes, Lee. Yes. Yes. Very good. The first one. We see Jacob relying upon his old ways. He was reconciling with Esau. What did he do? Sent all this stuff first. That that was going to assuage Esau. And so he sends these gifts to assuage the man. Verses 11 and 12. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey. Gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sack. So we see favoritism. We see selfishness. We see a reliance on his old ways. But also noted are some changes. Note that he is called Israel. He's not called Jacob anymore. What's significant about the name Israel? Yes. Rest. It is the name that God gave him. After he wrestled with God, the name which displayed the change in his character, which was the result of the work that God was going to do. We see here that he previously would not let Benjamin go with the brothers, but now is persuaded by Judah to let him go. We see God overriding his hardness or his being set in his ways. He indicates in verse 14 that he has, he understands that God needs to intervene in the situation in order for Simeon and Benjamin to return safely. And instead of trying to engineer the outcome he desires, he indicates resignation to God's will. Even though there is a bit of self-pity in those words, and as for me, if I am bereaved and my children, I am bereaved, 
It was an indication that it's God's will, ultimately, that will be worked out. And as mentioned about Judah before, whereas before he was seen separating from his family in chapter 38, what did he do in chapter 38? He went down into Canaan. He separated himself from his brothers, and here he takes leadership in responding to Israel's command to get more grain. He steps forward and reminds Jacob of the man's solemn warning. And whereas before Judah didn't care about his heritage and its future, because he married a Canaanite, remember? Here he says in verse 8, Send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah points out to Israel what's at stake. Three generations. You, the first generation. Us, the second generation. And our little ones, the next generations. He raises the stakes on Israel. And whereas before Judah was guided purely by his own self-interest, his offer of himself, unlike Reuben's offer of his two sons as the pledge, pronounced that he had indeed had a change in heart. One who was strictly self-interested as shown in his, his, uh, the, the history of what we read in, in chapter 38 is now offering himself as the pledge for Benjamin's safety. So we see here that desperation brought about by the continued severity of the famine and the prospect of death provoked a display of Judah's heart transformation as he stepped up, took leadership, and offered himself in exchange for Benjamin's safety. And further, it seems that this heart change in Judah caused Israel to let Benjamin make the journey to Egypt and to pray that God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, that God Almighty would intervene to cause the man to show the mercy and to allow Simeon and Benjamin to return safely. The question comes to us. Do we see trials and difficult circumstances as the mean that God sometimes uses to transform our hearts? Do we see them this way? Do we see trials and difficult circumstances as God-ordained opportunities for us to be conformed to the image of Christ and possibly even to change us and prepare us to be reconciled to those with whom we may be in conflict? Israel didn't realize that this is what God was doing. The brothers didn't realize that this is what God was doing. And so with this initial transforming work in Israel and Judah's heart, all 11 brothers successfully make the journey to Egypt where we will see in the next section of the passage heart transformation tested by confrontation. So as the brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph sees them and sets them apart. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. Remember, the last time they came to Egypt, Joseph had his brothers placed in custody for three days. And this experience in custody seemed to awaken their consciences to the wrong that they had done to Joseph so many years ago. And after they were released from custody and appeared before Joseph, we read in chapter 42, verse 21, Then they said to one another, 
In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And so now, here, they're being brought into Joseph's house, again seems to awaken their consciousness to the point that they confess what they perceived as their latest sin, leaving Egypt with grain and their money. Look at verse 18. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put money, who put our money in our sacks. Instead of putting them in prison, for what they believe could have been seen as theft, verses 23 and 24 indicate the steward's response, which may have been shocking to them. The steward says to them, Shalom. He speaks peace to them and tells them, Do not be afraid. And then says what, have, what should have been even more shocking to them, that their God, and the God of their father, put treasure in their sacks, indicating that he was aware of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And likely only because of just Joseph's testimony of Elohim. And then after that, he returns Simeon to them without any question. And then he takes them to Joseph's house, where he provides them with water to prepare to eat with Joseph. So here they are confessing their sin, expecting punishment, expecting to put be, expecting to be put back in prison. And instead, they have peace spoken to them. They have words of encouragement about God working in their life. They have Simeon return to them. And they are brought to Joseph's house to prepare for their meal. In verse 26, we read, When Joseph came home, they brought into the, into the house to him the present that they had with them. Remember, much was made of this present that Israel had the brothers prepare. And what was that gift? It was a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. And as Joseph looked at these, they might have brought back memories for him as these were the very goods that the Ishmaelite traders brought with them as they brought Joseph down to Egypt. We've come full circle. What they have brought to him, thinking that they are bringing a good gift, is once again a reminder to Joseph of the wrong that they have done. In verse 26, as all eleven brothers bow down to, to the ground, Joseph's first dream is fulfilled. Remember, the dream was only partially fulfilled before. 
Because all 11 brothers were not there. But now all 11 are there. We remember Joseph's telling of his first dream. Joseph's asked about their father. He speaks grace to Benjamin and leaves the room to weep because he's overcome with emotion. In verse 31, we read, Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Makes sense that Joseph would have been served separately because of his high position. But in verse 32, we are given a window into God's providence and eventually bringing Israel and his family into Egypt. Where the Canaanites were cultures that did not mind assimilation with the people around them, the Egyptians' sense of superiority to other cultures shown here in their not even being able to eat with others previewed how the nation of Israel would be preserved as a nation in Egypt. We had already seen Judah assimilating and joining the Canaanites, and the danger ran deep that the other brothers would do so as well. But because the Egyptians saw themselves as better than every other culture in the world and would not associate, their being brought down to Egypt would preserve the chosen people of God and would keep them separate from the culture around them. Verse 33, And they sat before him, firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of, the, as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. And if their interaction with the steward wasn't shocking enough, they're now stunned by their being seated according to their birth order. These people who do not know them have seated them, all 11 of them, in their exact birth order. The probability of that <laughs> is in the millions. <laughs> and as they're all there, they're told that the brothers receive portions from Joseph's table. Benjamin received five times as much as the others. Well, imagine the servers are coming through, serving each one of them, their portion, and then the last one, the youngest one, it's five times as much. Think of what could be going through their mind. So as we read here that finally that they, the other brothers, drank and were merry with him, brings us to our second question. What are the differences between the brothers' first interaction with Joseph and the indication of the second interaction in verses 26 through 34, and what is Joseph testing the brothers for in these verses? 
So think about the first interaction in comparison to this interaction. And what is Joseph testing the brothers for? What happened in the first interaction? Yes, Terry. Fearful. Mm -hmm. They don't know what he's going to do. Okay. And he's high up. Okay. 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 And why were they fearful in the first interaction with, with Joseph? Yes, Debbie. He was harsh. He was harsh with them. It says he spoke roughly to them. What else happened in that first interaction with Joseph? Liz? Okay. He accused them of being spies. What else happened in that first interaction? Yes, Caleb. He put them all in jail for three days. And he imprisoned Simeon and sent them all home. And in the second interaction, what do we see? As Terry said, much more relaxed. They ate with him. What else? Is different about this second interaction with Joseph. Yes, play it. Okay. Okay. So they brought his their brother with him, and he's showing them mercy. Caleb. Okay, so instead of putting them in jail, now has them in his own house. He speaks grace to Benjamin. The steward speaks peace to them. There's no accusation of their being spies. And he frees Simeon. In both interactions, Joseph is confronting his brother's hearts. The first interaction, Joseph confronts them with rough treatment, harsh words, imprisonment. And then here, in this second interaction, Joseph confronts his brothers with kindness. How would they respond to this kindness? And even more so, how would they respond to an in-your-face preferential treatment of Benjamin? Each one of them got one serving of food, but here the youngest one Remember, the youngest usually has no honor, is being honored by the prime minister of Egypt. And it's not just one extra helping, not two extra helpings. It says he's given four, or he's given five helpings of food, making it clearly obvious to them that he is favoring Benjamin over them. In this interaction, Joseph tests 
the brother's response to his favored treatment of Benjamin. Remember, in Joseph's case, they allowed their jealousy of him to develop into a murderous jealousy that translated into their selling him into slavery and then convincing their father of a lie that he believed for over 20 years. Joseph knows the depth of these men's hearts, not as much as God, but he has experienced the depth of their jealousy. And as they are all feasting, and as the brothers watch Benjamin get five times as much, there is an opportunity for them to grow jealous and envious of Benjamin and to covet what he received. But what do we see? Instead, they drank and were merry with him. They saw that he was being favored, and yet they drank and were married. And Mary, because even in their receiving less than Benjamin, were they not still receiving far more than they deserved from their brother that they had sold into slavery? Ultimately, weren't these brothers deserving of the rough treatment of Joseph and would not it be somewhat justified for it to stay there? But it did not. Instead, we see his kindness being shown to them. And as we look at this scene, we should ask ourselves, how do I respond when someone else is blessed by God, particularly in a way that I desired or prayed for and have not seen an answer to my prayer? Do I become easily jealous of my brother or sister because of the way that God has chosen to gift them or to use them or to bless them? Kevin DeYoung, in a sermon on this passage, said it very well when he said that the sin of jealousy is rooted in deficient theology. God can give to whoever, whatever, and I would add, and whenever he pleases. The little that we may think we have in comparison to what others have is far more than we deserve. So as we see them feasting, we see them making merry with their brother Benjamin. These brothers have seemingly passed the test of their heart transformations by having the areas of jealousy and envy confronted as they feasted. But there is still one more test for them. And in this last test, before reconciliation occurs, heart transformation will be confirmed by demonstration. As the brothers are sent off to travel back to Canaan, Joseph once again has the money unknowingly returned to the brothers. And his silver cup is placed in Benjamin's sack. The brothers are a short distance away from the city. The steward overtakes them and asks why they stole in Joseph's cup. In response to the steward's accusation, they pronounce their innocence and declare that whoever is found with the cup will die and that the other brothers will become Joseph's servant. So you see them demonstrating their, their innocence, saying that the one who is stolen this will die. And as you compare a stolen cup to what essentially has been a stolen life, Joseph, 
just amazing how righteous we become about what we believe justice should be when we're convinced that someone else has done far more wrong than we have. And in verse 10, the steward modifies what will happen to the one found with the cup by saying, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. The steward searches each brother's sack in their birth order. You can imagine the drama here as each one opens their bag, okay? Not him. Not him. All the way down the line. And when he comes to Benjamin's sack, the cup is found. And all the brothers tear their clothes to show great, great emotion. They load their donkeys and return to the city. Brothers' response to the discovery of Joseph's cup and Benjamin's sack was the first confirmed demonstration of the transformation of their hearts. These brothers previously sold Joseph into slavery with cold heartlessness that required them to devise a lie. But here they had a valid excuse. Benjamin, why would you steal the prime minister's cup? It was an easy out for them. You stole the cup. You deserve the punishment. We're going home. But instead, they don't abandon Benjamin or even abandon Benjamin and Judah because it, remember, it was Judah who stepped forward and said, I will be a pledge for him. So they could have easily said, Benjamin and Judah, you go into Egypt and talk to the man. You figure out how you're going to get out of this. They don't do that either. All of them tore their clothes, loaded their donkeys, returned to the city. Imagine that you're Joseph. You're waiting in your house to know the result of this last test. And while there were no open signs of jealousy toward Benjamin the night before, you wonder what your brother's response would be to the seeming guilt of this brother that they recognize, clearly recognize as being favored, not only by their father, but now by this great leader. Perhaps you would expect your steward and just Benjamin to return. But imagine what you might have thought when you see Benjamin and all ten of his brothers return. How much more surprising it might be as well to see Judah, who is pronounced first in verse 14, as leading the way into your court. These brothers who were previously marked by division and conflict all appear before you as one. Joseph questions the brothers. As he initially questioned them, questions them, Judah, Judah, who is now the unquestionable leader of the brothers, steps forward to respond to Judah. Judah's initial response, he indicates in verse 16, that God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both 
we and he also is in whose hand the cup has been found. Indicating Judah's understanding that what these brothers are experiencing goes far beyond the immediate situation and is connected to the evil that they had done to Joseph previously. After Joseph indicates that only the one who had wrongful possession of the cup would remain as his servant, Judah delivers an impassioned plea, starting in verse 18. As I read this, consider our last question of the study. In what ways are Judah's heart transformation demonstrated? Verses 18 through 34. Look at verse 18. Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. He said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. Our youngest brother goes goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What ways Judah's heart transformation demonstrated in this address? We see great care for his father. Yes. Um, a lot of this is focused on his father and how he would react if Benjamin is not returned. Yes. There's a great care and concern shown for what will happen to his father if they return without Benjamin. Was that same care and concern shown when they return to their father without Joseph? No, it was not. What else? Yes, Terry. Yes, he offers himself to be Joseph's servant. And notice he didn't say for how long. 
He didn't say for five years, for ten years. He was willing to stay in Egypt and be a servant to Joseph. These are no longer mere words that he spoke to Israel before. It's very easy before the journey is made and before hardship hits to say, I'll be a pledge for him. But here he is clearly demonstrating his willingness to give his life on behalf of his brothers, his brother's life. And notice also that Judah openly acknowledges Benjamin's favored position with his father and accepts it. In verse 30, he says that his father's life is bound up in the boy's life. And while one could easily see Judah, the old Judah, using that against Benjamin in this case, having a quote-unquote valid excuse to see Benjamin taken as a servant, he accepts that Benjamin is the favored son. He accepts the fact that in many ways Israel has sinned against him, sinned against the rest of the brothers in making Benjamin such a prize and such a joy to his heart that he neglects the others seemingly. But because his heart has been transformed, he can go beyond that and say, I'm willing to give my life on behalf of this boys. Chapter 44 ends with Judah's plea. We are left to see what Joseph's response will be. But as we see Judah offering to take Benjamin's place, See the shadow of the one to come who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't just offer himself with his words. He willingly laid down his life in the place of sinners. And so Judah pre-shadows Christ in this address. And as we close out this study, we see that Judah and his brothers have indeed changed from men who callously ate their lunch while Joseph pleaded for his life in the pit, and then presented Joseph's bloodied coat to their fathers, to those who have now clearly demonstrated the transformation of heart. And we know that this heart transformation was not simply a result of them wanting to be better people, but instead this transformation was the result of the work of a gracious God. God who had a purpose, God who had a plan for redemption, God who would indeed send the Savior of the world into this world through the lineage of this family. The God of Genesis is the same God who promises to be faithful to complete the transformation of our hearts as well. He is doing that now by his Spirit. But he promises 
that he will be faithful to complete the work that he began in our lives by fully conforming us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as application, I have four things. One, we should allow trials and difficult circumstances to do their work. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inherit, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials and difficulty to bring about a genuineness, a testing of our faith, so that the result may be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God used trial and difficult circumstance in the life of Jacob's family to bring about praise and glory and honor to his name to the fulfillment of his purpose. Secondly, we should consider how easily we become jealous or envious of our brothers and sisters and even unbelievers when God blesses them in ways that we may desire to be blessed by God. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10 say this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. These brothers sat there and looked at how Benjamin was being preferred. They could have easily given in to jealousy and envy. We saw previously that they had given in to jealousy and envy. As we see God blessing others, as we see God gifting others, as we see God using others, we become jealous. Do we look away from what God has blessed us with and what God has told us we should be content with and think that we know better and that we should have what that other person has. Are we satisfied in God? Thirdly, if we are in conflict with someone, we should seek to understand if there are any ways that our hearts should be transformed in preparation for reconciliation. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way 
everlasting. We're seeking reconciliation. We should first ask God to examine our hearts. We should not go pointing the finger immediately at the other person. We should be asking God to search us, to change us, because we want to see God glorified in reconciliation with those that we may be in conflict with. And then finally, we should praise God for sending Christ who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our place in suffering the just wrath of God. He did not speak mere words. He clearly demonstrated his great love for the Father's will and his great love for us in laying down his life. We praise God that he was raised on the third day. In his resurrection, we were justified. And that he has sent his spirit. The spirit is sanctifying us and preparing that day. And we will be fully transformed when our hearts will be like his heart without sin in the very presence of our Lord and Savior. So we are at time, but I think we have may have time for a question or a comment. Any questions or comments on our study tonight? Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we see the work that you do in the hearts and lives of your people. Lord, as we have studied this word, I pray that you would convict us of any sin of jealousy or envy in our hearts. Lord, convict us of of those times when we have desired or coveted what others have. And Lord, help us by your Spirit to be content with the great grace that you have shown us in blessing us with what we do have. Lord, for every good and perfect gift comes from you. And Lord, we also pray that you would give us the grace to be reconciled to those with whom we may be in conflict. And that first we would seek to be examined by you, by your word. And Lord, that we would seek to be reconciled for the glory of your name, that you may receive honor and praise. And Lord, we do indeed thank you that tonight we can approach you knowing that, this, that our sin has been fully paid. There is no other work to be done. And Lord Jesus, you took our place under the wrath of the Father and because you fulfilled all of the law, both in doing what was required of it and then suffering as one who broke all of it. Lord, we know that you are the fulfillment of the law. And so we can come united in Christ, knowing that our prayers are heard and knowing that by the Spirit of God we are being changed from one 
one phase of glory to the next, even as by the Spirit of God. Lord, we do thank you once again for this time in your word, and we pray that it would bear fruit to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.